All right. Um, can someone mind praying for me this morning? I didn't get much sleep, and I'm feeling pretty weak. Sure, I will. Thanks. Father, we praise you for this man of God and for anointing him with the gift of teaching and preaching. Mm. And we pray that you would stir up that gift with your heavenly unction and give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. All right, so uh, for a year and a half now, we've been going through Luke's gospel. We've been working our way through Luke. And uh, since Valentine's Day last year, we've been following Jesus on his final journey uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem. It's a journey that begins at the end of Luke chapter 9. Um, and uh, it ends here in Luke chapter 19, when Jesus finally arrives at Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. So preaching through it has taken us almost a whole year. So the end of Luke's gospel is now in sight. And today we're looking at Luke chapter 19, uh, starting at verse 28. So It'd be good to see it. You can grab a, one of the black Bibles um, and find Luke chapter 19. It's on page 878. So here's the scene. The city of Jerusalem is one of the highest cities uh, on earth. It's at 2,400 feet above sea level, a mountain city. Um, and the temple in Jerusalem was the highest point in the city, within the city walls. The temple's also right on the eastern side of the city. It's right hard up against the eastern wall of Jerusalem. Um, and you can still stand there on the temple platform in Jerusalem and, um, and look east. Uh, and what you see is the, gr the ground just plummets down into the Kidron Valley to the east and then soars back up to the Mount of Olives. Uh, and the road that goes that way goes over the Mount of Olives and then steeply down. To, Jerusalem, uh, to Jericho, to Jericho, and Jericho is the lowest city on earth. It's 800 feet below sea level. So um, this was the main route that pilgrims took coming uh, to uh, the feasts in Jerusalem. And uh, the last part of the journey was this climb up from 800 feet below sea level in Jericho to 2,400 feet up at Jerusalem. And you did that climb over the course of about 15 miles of road. So that's a pretty serious climb. So if you've, um, if you've climbed the stairs of our Capitol building, right back there, then that's 22 stories. Um, that, that's quite hard work. It's, it's fun to do, I, I recommend it. Climb, climb all the way to the top and there's a great view. Um, but the climb up from Jericho to Jerusalem is like doing the Capitol building nine times. Right? It's a pretty serious climb. And all the way as you're climbing up, going west towards Jerusalem, you don't see the city for the whole journey because the Mount of Olives, which is right next to it, is just slightly higher than the city. So you're going up and up and up and you never see it until you crest the Mount of Olives and then there's Jerusalem laid out just below you and across the Kidron Valley. Uh, and, and because you've been walking all day, it's evening, the sun's behind the city, the, the sun's uh, kind of late in the, in the afternoon sky, and the city's glittering there below you. So as you came up to the feasts, it would have been quite a dramatic entrance, uh, an impressive moment. So in this scene in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is making this dramatic entrance into Jerusalem, and Jesus knows that it's the last time he's going to do it before he's crucified. 
And so he comes down the Mount of Olives with a big crowd of his disciples. And as he's coming down, the crowd suddenly realizes that this moment is a big deal. That this is a big deal, that they are part of something significant, even world-changing. And the crowd is moved, God's spirit moves in them, and they cry out in worship. Now this is one of those rare moments in Jesus' life when the clouds parted and the light broke through and people suddenly saw the truth. They saw what God was doing in their midst. And they could not be silenced. Jesus said if he told them to be quiet, the very stones would cry out. These people were sensing a mighty movement of God and they just had to worship. So as we look at this event and try to understand it, the triumphal entry, I want us to take our cues from the crowd. And that's a bit unusual in the Gospels because the crowd isn't usually the ones clued in. They're usually pretty clueless. But this time, we learn from this event from the crowd who witnessed it. So I want to focus particularly on verse 38 of Luke 19. And if you look down at verse 38, it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So right there in verse 38 are the three big ideas of the triumphal entry. And they are victory, glory, and peace. The three big ideas are victory, glory, and peace. And today I want to spend our time exploring what each of those words means. I'm going to look at the first two more briefly and then spend most of our time on that third one. So the first word is victory. On the day Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowd cried out praises in the words of Psalm 118. They cried, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So uh, while you keep a finger in Luke 19, turn back to that psalm, Psalm 118. I'd like us to see the whole psalm. Uh, It's at page 511 of the church Bibles, Psalm 118. Because for Jewish people in the first century, they could be counted on to know their Hebrew Bible, as Jack was saying us last week. And when they quoted from part of a psalm, they would have the whole psalm in their heads. They were really uh, quoting from the whole psalm at once. So if you found Psalm 118, then uh, let's start by looking at verse 26, because that's the part they quote. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay? That's the part the crowd was shouting. So what is this whole psalm about? Psalm 118 is a victory psalm. It's rejoicing in God's victory over his enemies and his vindication of his people. So look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That's Exodus language. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of God exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. It's talking about God's decisive victory. The Exodus-style triumph of God's mighty right arm. A glorious day of salvation. The day the Lord has made. It's the day God establishes his true king, his Messiah, to save his people forever. And it's the start of a new era for Israel. This is the psalm that talks about the cornerstone. So look at verse 22. It says, The stone that the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone. And that's talking about a new building that God is going to build, a new temple built on a new foundation. So that's what the crowd was getting excited about. They were quoting from Psalm 118 because that psalm gave them the language to celebrate the mighty victory of God's king. So that's the first word, victory. And you can flip back to Luke 19 now. Our second word is glory. Glory. They call out glory in heaven. Glory in Christ. By glory, we mean the holy, radiant beauty of God. And the most glorious moments of the Old Testament are those moments when God comes to dwell on earth with his people. When, God, when, when people get to see and experience God's glory, that is amazing in the Old Testament. And it happened first in the tabernacle. So Moses built a tent for God to God's exact blueprint. He built him a tabernacle in the wilderness. And then in Exodus chapter 40, it says, The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then it happened again in the temple. So Solomon built this grand, glittering temple in Jerusalem. And 2 Chronicles chapter 7 says, The glory of the Lord filled the temple. You seeing the pattern? But then that temple was destroyed, and then later it was rebuilt. And we don't read anywhere in the Old Testament that the glory of the Lord ever came to the second temple. God promised that it would come in several places, and especially through the prophet Haggai. But through to the end of the Old Testament, the second temple remained an empty house. The priests ministered and prayed and made sacrifices, but the temple had no glory. So here, what we are witnessing in the triumphal entry is the glory of God finally coming to the second temple. Jesus, the Son of God, came down the Mount of Olives from the east and entered the temple by the east gate, just as Ezekiel prophesied in chapter 43 that we read earlier. Ezekiel wrote, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. This prophecy came to pass in Jesus' triumphal entry. And it's hard to say whether or not the crowd who was there really knew that that's what was happening, but they did cry out, Glory in the highest! And that was dead right. Mm -hmm. So that's the second word, glory. And now for the third word, which is peace. And here's where I want to spend most of our time. So peace is a really big concept in Hebrew. It's not just about the end of war. It's about a whole sense of harmony and well-being and contentment. <clears throat> so all enemies are subdued on every side, all conflicts resolved, all needs provided for, and the future stretches ahead, secure and untroubled. That's what Hebrews mean when they talk about peace. And peace is one of the key themes of the triumphal entry. So all four gospel writers make a big deal of the fact that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's part of our story in Luke. They pay a lot of attention to how he acquired the donkey and then the fact that he rode it. And two of the Gospels quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the next thing that Zechariah says is, he shall speak peace to the nations. Mm. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah announced that the victory of the Messiah would bring peace to the nations because of his righteous rule. And Luke is the only one of the gospel writers who picks up on this key theme of peace in connection with the triumphal entry. So Luke records the crowd shouting, peace in heaven, in verse 38. And then as Jesus draws near to the city, the destination he's been heading for since chapter 9 of Luke, instead of rejoicing at his arrival, Jesus weeps. And Luke records in verse 42 what he said. Jesus said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Mm. The name Jerusalem means city of peace. But the city of peace didn't even know the things that make for peace. On the day of their visitation, they weren't ready for their king. They didn't recognize their God, and they didn't know the things that made for peace. So here's my question for us this morning. Do we know the things that make for peace? That's an important thing to know, right? Everybody loves peace. Everybody wants peace. You can still drive by the Capitol building and see people out there with signs saying, no more war and give peace a chance. <laughs> that slogan's been around for more than 50 years now. And in all that time, have we learned? Have we learned what makes for peace? Here was John Lennon's answer. You've heard it before. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. John Lennon was one of the leaders of the hippie movement. He was the man who penned the song, Give Peace a Chance, and that was his recipe for peace. We need to get rid of politics and religion. Because politics and religion are the causes of conflict, and ordinary people are better off without them. And I really can't be sure that 50 years later, our culture can really do any better than John Lennon. Is that it? Is that our best answer? Is that peace's best chance? Well, it's not Jesus' answer. The Prince of Peace has different ideas about what makes for peace. So for starters, we've seen that his triumphal entry was about victory and glory. In other words, both politics and religion. The right king on the throne and the right God in his temple. Mm. Those things aren't obstacles to peace. They're actually part of what makes for peace. Mm. Lenin had it backwards. Because the war isn't out there. The war is inside us. What causes fights and quarrels among us? Isn't it the passions at war within us? We desire and we don't have, so we murder. We cover and cannot obtain, so we fight and quarrel. 
The wars of the world come out of people's own hearts, out of ordinary people's hearts, and even out of the weed-smoking hippies' own hearts. <laughs> That's where wars are made. We need the right king and the right God for peace. There's no peace without them. And Jesus gladly takes up both of those roles as the center of both our politics and our religion. But of course, there's much more to peace than that. Good governance restrains the problem, but it doesn't cure it. We need to be healed on the inside if we're ever going to find the Hebrew idea of secure and lasting peace. So let's look again at this passage to find what else Jesus has for us. And the first thing we find is humility. Humility. Jesus was the greatest man who ever walked the earth, right? We remember that, right? <laughs> he was the divinely appointed king of the earth. He commanded legions of angels. He was God eternal, immortal, the creator of stars and galaxies. Against Jesus, all the kings and rulers of the earth are just strutting peacocks. Against Jesus, Einstein was clueless. Socrates was a fool. Alexander the Great is a wimp. And Julius Caesar is a coward. Jesus is truly, legitimately great. The one man who's ever walked the earth who actually deserves worship. And his triumphal entry in Luke 19 is the greatest moment of his great life. Claiming his throne, entering his temple. And at this triumphal moment, he comes in riding on a donkey. In his old smelly clothes. No riches, no finery, no servants. Why? Because the mighty king of heaven is humble. He's humble. He's not pretending to be humble. He's not teaching us how to be humble. He's not giving us an example of being humble. He is humble. Jesus is God, and God is humble. Think about that. The greatest being to ever have existed anywhere, and the being who made everything else, is humble. There's no arrogance in heaven. Among the ones who are truly great, there's no arrogance. There's only arrogance on earth, among we small ones, who all feel the need to make ourselves great. So the ones who think they're great, who strut around, are actually the ones least like God. And we who know God know that we must come to him humbly, not just because that humility is appropriate to our smallness, but also because by coming humbly, we reflect God's own character. So where there is pride, there will never be peace. And if any of us would seek to be peacemakers in this war-torn world, we must step forward humbly and not imagine that we can do any good if we act from judgmentalism or pride or a critical spirit. Jesus shows us that the way of peace is the way of humility. And finally, and most importantly, we should know about one more thing that makes for peace, that the way of peace is the way of the cross. As Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, he knew that he was less than a week away from the cross. And that was where he was going to sign the world's only lasting peace treaty. 
Now, I really want you to see this, so grab a Bible again and flip forward to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, the one that Hope read for us earlier. It's on page uh, 976 of the Black Bibles, Ephesians 2, and this is where we're going to end. So in Ephesians 2, from verses 11 to 22, the whole section has, I think, a really surprising amount of overlapping themes with the triumphal entry that we've just been talking about. So if you look at verse 20, Paul talks there about the cornerstone. And he's thinking of Psalm 118, the triumphal entry psalm. In verse 19, Paul talks about our citizenship in heaven. <clears throat> That's the political reality of having Jesus as our king. And in verses 21 and 22, Paul talks about the Spirit of God coming to his holy temple. And Paul means the new temple built from the living stones of God's redeemed people. So do you see how many ways this passage sounds a lot like the triumphal entry themes? And the key word in this whole section at the end of Ephesians 2 is peace. Peace. You hear it over and over again as Hope read it. And I want to zoom in on verse 14, because Paul wrote there, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So now here we are at the heart of the matter. This is our true answer to peace. It takes the broken body of Jesus to break down our conflicts with each other. This is where the internal problem is finally healed. This is where alienated rivals are finally reconciled. We're healed by being forgiven at the cross of Jesus. And we're reconciled by forgiving our own enemies at the cross of Jesus. And then we're united as one new man by the broken body of Jesus. Here finally is the recipe for true and lasting peace. And it's accomplished for us by the great self-sacrifice of the Prince of Peace. Jesus' death is the only wrecking ball heavy enough to break down our dividing walls of humility. Sorry, I always say that. Our dividing walls of hostility. <coughs> humility is a good thing. When Paul used that phrase, the dividing wall of hostility, he was actually thinking of a real physical wall. It was a wall that was in the temple in Jerusalem, and it separated the court of Gentiles from the inner sanctuary of the temple that was only accessible to Jews. It was a wall that said to the Gentiles, you must keep out. You are not welcome to come in any further. But when Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, he used that wall as a metaphor for walls that exist in human hearts. So particularly in, in, in Ephesians, it's the wall between Jews and Gentiles, between people inside and outside the covenant of God. And uh, Paul writes that Jesus came to break down that dividing wall of hostility. And the reality that Paul draws attention to in that particular case is also true more generally. We all have walls in our hearts, dividing walls of hostility. They're walls by which we divide ourselves into nations and clans and parties and cliques and religious groups. 
Wars that we use to cut certain people out and then hate them and then go to war against them. Those dividing walls of hostility start as an internal reality, but pretty quickly they turn into an external reality as well. So they become rules or laws or executive orders or fences or real physical walls. And we seem to live in a world today that's building a lot of walls. Not just in this country, but around the world, people are strengthening and fortifying their dividing walls of hostility. It's not good, and it's not right. It's the opposite of the peace that Jesus came to accomplish. Through his cross, he demolished our dividing walls of hostility, but now we're building them back up again. Over the past few months, we've seen a lot of new walls grow up in this country between Democrats and Republicans, between men and women, between ethnic groups, between this country and its neighbors, between supporters and haters, and between citizens and immigrants. These developments are not the things that make for peace. But if we want to follow Jesus' way of peace, what are we supposed to do as the walls rise around us? What we might be tempted to do is to fight, to become angry, protest, criticize, and try to tear the walls down with our own hands. And perhaps Jesus did do something a bit like that when he went into the temple and overturned the tables of the moneylenders. So perhaps there is a place for that kind of strong prophetic challenge. But Jesus also came into Jerusalem humble. He came humbly and riding on a donkey. And that kind of humility before God is essential <clears throat> if we're going to take the path of protest. Otherwise, it's just human anger. And the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Even Jesus only turned over the money tables one time. And his anger was always righteous. But his life's work was to accomplish peace. And he didn't finish it there scattering coins in the temple. He finished it on the cross. It's the way of the cross that's most effective as a way to peace, the way of self-sacrificial love. So instead of worrying too much about the walls themselves, I want us to turn our attention to the people on the other side of those walls. So much of Jesus' ministry was spent loving people on the other side of the wall. Women, children, tax collectors, sinners, lepers, people who were demon-possessed, and even Roman soldiers. It astonished people and sometimes offended people because it was love through the wall. In 1989, soon after the order came to tear down the Berlin Wall, the citizens of Berlin attacked the wall with sledgehammers and holes started appearing all over it. And from that situation came one of the most powerful images of the year, which was the image of an East German guard reaching through a hole in the Berlin Wall to shake hands with a West German woman. You've probably seen that photo. It's just a handshake, totally ordinary. But it's totally extraordinary because it communicated love and respect through the war. I think that's what we need to be about as a community in this season of our country's life. We need to be about loving people through the walls. 
When people started loving each other through the Berlin Wall, the wall itself was doomed. So if you're angry or frustrated or scared by the walls you see growing up around us in this country, turn it into this question, who can I love on the other side of the wall? So if you're frustrated by partisan politics and you lean Democrat, who can you love who's a Republican? If you're worried about walls going up between men and women and you're a man, how can you show more love and respect to women? If you're worried about walls going up between Christians and Muslims, how can you love Muslims? I was really inspired last week to hear about some of you doing just that. And if you're upset about walls going up to shut out refugees, how can you love refugees? I actually have an answer for that last one. <laughs> and it's on the flyer in your service leaflet. So um, City Church, right here in town, has a ministry to refugee families from the Congo, and they're asking for help from people in other churches. So there's information on here. Uh, two people in this congregation are personal friends with the organizer, Jen Stewart, and they both got in touch with me a couple of weeks ago to see how Incarnation might get involved. So we've made this little flyer for you, and here's how. And if you want to find out more about it, you can talk to me, or Michelle Brodeur, or Catherine Miller after the service. So yes, there are walls between us, dividing walls of hostility. And those walls are wrong. Jesus died to tear those walls down. And the wrecking ball is his own body. But that's his job. He's the rightful king on the throne and the rightful God in his temple. And he will ultimately demolish the walls. We can hold that as our great hope. And in the meantime, the job he's given us is to love people through the wall. That's our part in making peace. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Amen. Amen.